Hello all and welcome to a special bonus edition of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. I'm Paul, I'm the host and creator of the True Crime Enthusiast. You guys are the wonderful enthusiasts who keep the show going and spinning each week and it's fantastic as ever to have all of you here. Now it's just a short intro to say that this episode, this bonus episode, is released on the show's second birthday. That's absolutely, I can't even get my head around it. When I started the show two years ago, I could never imagined that it would become the success that it has. And that's all down to you guys. You all absolutely rule and you really do make the show. So as I did last year, I decided to release one of the bonus Patreon episodes to everybody on the show's birthday. Just to say thank you very much from me. Uh, it was a success last year with the earprint murder and I've decided to do the same thing this year. Uh, the votes have been up on Facebook in a poll and on Twitter in a head-to-head battle between the most popular two voted for and there was one pretty clear overall winner which is the episode that you're about to hear shortly. Before we get to that though it once again I just want to echo thanks so much guys it's birthday number two is absolutely fantastic and you really do all rule you make the show. The bonus episode that's been chosen is a very popular one. It's a quite remarkable case. It's one I proper stumbled across and I hope you enjoy it as much as the feedback that I've received for it. Bearing that in mind, please get comfy as a special birthday thank you from the true crime enthusiast. Settle down as we look at the case entitled The Wife in the Wicker Basket. Hello all, welcome to March and I extend you a massive welcome to the latest bonus episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast exclusive to here for your very kind Patreon support of the show and up to now bonus episode number 14. I'm Paul, the creator and host of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast saying hi to new friends and supporters and a welcome back to old. Thank you so much for your kind support of the show. It makes a massive difference and it assists so much in keeping the show going. It's really great of you. I'm absolutely blown away all the time. For those listeners who are new Patreon supporters and your bonus listening for the first time, then unlike the weekly regular episodes of the show, these monthly bonus ones may not be as long, but I do try to seek out the obscure and unfamiliar ones still, and I hope that you find them as interesting and informative as the regular episodes. Also, you get no adverts or promos in these, and there's only a slight bit of me saying thanks like I am now, and talking usual bollocks that I do. I like to get right down to the episode in case. The case I've selected this month is a horrific crime with bizarre twists that actually wouldn't be out of place as the plot of a TV show or a really shit B-movie, and it took place between the cities of Manchester and Liverpool way back in 1978. I'll let you guys make up your own minds following the episode about what you think about it. 
As ever here on the show, some descriptions of crimes or events mentioned within the episode may disturb or upset some listeners, so your discretion is advised as always. With that in mind, please get comfy and join the True Crime Enthusiasts this month for a bonus Patreon episode we look back at the case I've entitled The Wife in the Wicker Basket. On a grey, chilly November afternoon, 34-year-old housewife Mary Jones found herself in one of the scariest and strangest predicaments you could ever imagine, and one that you certainly wouldn't wish to be in. Mary lay half-naked, with her hands trussed up tightly with strong sash cord, and bundled into a large wicker trunk. Perhaps she thought it was some sort of daft joke gone too far, or maybe even some sort of kinky sex thing. It does take all sorts, after all and she'd just finished a particularly fantasy-fuelled and energetic sex session just minutes before, the kind of sex session that Mary hadn't experienced or enjoyed in many years. But when several heavy stones were placed into the basket with her, perhaps the by now increasingly frightened woman had some sort of inkling as to what was ultimately in store for her, and by then it was too late to do anything except appeal desperately to the bearded, bespectacled man with her eyes. She couldn't move, she couldn't even cry out or scream, because she was gagged as well. In any case, there was no one who could hear if she could, because she and the man who placed her inside were in the middle of nowhere, as the bearded, merciless face loomed over her as the last person Mary was about to ever see, what must have been an unimaginable wave of terror swept over her, because at that time she must have known that she was going to die, and death was coming very soon for her. She must have been absolutely certain of this and out of her mind with terror as the lid was placed on the basket, was clapped shut and was sealed with wooden pins. Now I can't even begin to imagine how terrifying that must have been and it's a horrendous thing to do that, isn't it? How callous can a person be to do that to someone else? It's just... Mary felt the wicker trunk being dragged across the stony gravel of the riverbank, feeling the jolting and sensation of movement as the heavy trunk was half lifted, half dragged, before it stopped for a few seconds, near enough for the terrified woman to clearly hear the flow of the river. Although the sealed top of the trunk blocked out much of the light, the texture of the basket meant that pinpricks of light came through the thousands of different holes between the wicker weave. But that wasn't all that was about to come through the holes. Perhaps Mary heard a last exerted grunt as the man gave a final effort of pushing. Perhaps she felt a momentary sensation of falling. And perhaps she felt the loud decisive splash as the wicker basket hit the river from where it had been pushed off the steep bank. The river water would have seeped in swiftly through all of the gaps. And although the river wasn't too deep, Mary couldn't flee or stand up even from the closed trunk. Her hands were, of course, tied, and the weight of the heavy stones inside the basket with her had dragged the trunk right to the bottom of the river. Now, I can't imagine the fear that must have run through her mind in those moments, the last gasp trying to hold your breath and desperately escape, and the ultimate terror and rising panic that that poor woman must have felt. Perhaps mercifully she soon passed out from the shock and fright of it all and was actually unaware of her final moments. No one can ever know for sure. Mary's killer, because make no mistake this was an attempted murder or horseplay gone wrong, watched for a few seconds to make sure the basket was submerged and then headed back to the vehicle both had arrived in 
got inside and started it, and then drove off. The aforementioned description of callousness isn't from the screen in a film or a TV drama, and it's not from the pages of a horror novel either. These events took place near the city of Manchester on Wednesday the 15th of November 1978. That November evening in 1978, when Mary didn't return to her house in the Lodge Road area of Toxteth, a district south of the city centre of Liverpool and some 30 miles away from her final watery grave, the 35-year-old husband, Henry Jones, I don't know if it's Indiana Jones's dad or not, spent the evening telephoning his family, then Mary's family and friends, looking for her. None of them could shed any light on where she was or maybe, and by the following morning, Henry Jones had reported Mary as a missing person to Liverpool Police. An officer from the Department of Missing Persons took the call and Julie came out to take a statement from Mr Jones, but there wasn't very much that he could report on. Mary and Henry Jones had met ten years before at Masters Group Limited, a Liverpool-based import-export company where Henry was an office manager and where Mary had that year been taken on as a secretary. They'd rapidly begun a relationship and had married in May 1969, following which Mary had left her job at the firm and had ceased working. The couple were comfortably off for the time as Henry was in a good position at the firm and the house in which the couple lived actually belonged to Mary, her having inherited it from her first husband who had died a few years previously. There were no financial or domestic problems that Henry could think of and he told police that he knew of no logical reason why his wife may have disappeared. The officer taking the report asked Henry bluntly if, if Mrs Jones had any male friends, shall we say, and when he was asked this, Henry went a shade of red with perhaps a mix of anger and embarrassment, and he denied it. Then almost on the next breath, he admitted that when he'd looked through his wife's address book for the numbers of people for him to call when he was searching for her the previous evening, he'd come across the name Tony Saunders. It was a name Henry claimed that he didn't know, and he was at a loss as to why the name was in the book. Mary certainly hadn't mentioned any Tony to him. The detective asked to see Mary's address book, and sure enough, the name Tony Saunders was written on the corresponding S page in longhand, but had neither an address or a telephone number for him written alongside the name. Before leaving, the officer had then decided to call and speak to several of the Jones's neighbours, on the QT of course, interested in finding out if any of the neighbours may have been aware if Mary Jones had been perhaps receiving a male visitor in the afternoon while her husband was at work. Almost by chance, when he spoke to one of the neighbours down the block and he let the name Tony Saunders slip, one of the Jones's neighbours immediately recognised the name. She told how a young man with a very neatly trimmed beard and horn-rimmed glasses had called at her house the previous week, a door-to-door -door salesman of some sort who was chancing his arm trying to sell her something. The company he'd said he was from was called Brown and Company, she remembered, and the man had definitely given his name as Tony Saunders. But the woman was uninterested in whatever he was trying to sell and had shut the door in his face before finding out what it was he was offering. A check at some of the other houses in the Lodge Road area revealed that Tony Saunders had also called at two of these. He'd been turned away at one of them, but the other he'd been welcomed in and had even stopped for a cuppa, although the housewife spoken to had not been altogether sure what the product was that he was selling, even after the man had been there for some time. It seemed to her 
that he was almost uninterested in making a sale. The detective went back to headquarters and made out the missing persons report, in which the possibility was raised that Mary Saunders had possibly done a bunk with a lover who was possibly a man called Tony Saunders. Although according to Henry Jones, the couple's married life was all normal and good, Mary may have had a differing idea. There were no children in the Jones marriage, and after being married for ten years, perhaps Mary had become bored with her life and fancied a bit of excitement and a fresh start. Stranger things have happened, after all. The standard activities concerned with when a missing person is reported to police were carried out, but as there was no reason to suspect any foul play, or even anything but Mary Jones having run off with someone, there was not a lot more that could be done. Henry Jones called police several times over the following few days to inquire as to any progress that was being made in the hunt for his wife, and each time he was assured that detectives were working on trying to find her, doing all that they could. And this wasn't fobbing him off, they actually were doing this. One of the officers in the missing persons department had been sent around each firm named Brown and Company, of which there were several in the area, inquiring as to any who employed a salesperson named Tony Saunders. Were police to trace Mary through a successful hit at doing this, they couldn't of course bring her back to her husband in handcuffs against her will, but they could at least reassure him that Mary was alive and had come to no harm, and it would be up to the Joneses themselves to sort out their own extramarital mess. By the following Monday, 20th of November, the companies were still being visited, and the detective tasked to do this was still having no luck whatsoever. Saunders was proven elusive. Also that Monday morning though, and about 30 miles away near a remote stretch of Manchester's River Medlock, a 28-year-old labourer attached to the Department of Roads and Bridges was carrying out repairs to a fence near the riverbank when he noticed a large wicker trunk grounded on a gravel bar in a shallow eddy of the river. As the worker was wearing a raincoat and Wellington boots due to the adverse weather that day, and so was equipped to wade into the river and investigate the trunk and what it may contain, he subsequently did just that. He was so frightened by what he found after opening the basket that he actually staggered backwards, stumbled into a decline in the riverbed, and was himself swept downstream for a short distance. Managing to regain his footing, he shot out of the river like a rat up a drainpipe, and ran as fast as he could, soaked to the skin, to the nearest village where he telephoned police. Police from Manchester were immediately dispatched to the scene, and upon arrival the area was sealed off and the trunk and its grisly contents recovered from the river and removed to the Manchester police morgue. The dead woman inside the trunk was quickly determined to be the same Mrs Mary Jones who'd been reported missing from the city of Liverpool five days before as a killer had conveniently dropped a handbag, complete with a driver's licence and other various papers inside, into the basket with the trussed-up woman. So, the missing persons department of Liverpool Police now had their case solved, but it was now over to the Liverpool CID murder squad for their investigation, as this was as clear a case of murder, if ever there was one to determine. Following Mary's body being transferred to the Liverpool Police Morgue and being positively identified by Henry Jones, a murder investigation began, and it began with the autopsy. According to the report of the examining pathologist, Mary had been dead for at least five days and had been in the water for the same length of time. 
Chillingly, the autopsy confirmed that Mary had been conscious at the time she was thrown into the water, helpless and locked in, because a number of ruptured minor blood vessels were found that were conclusive with her having desperately attempted to hold her breath for as long as she possibly could. The cold water had preserved the body well, an immediate cause of death was found to have been drowning. Mary's body had no indications of a violent attack or signs of her having been beaten, but the cord binding the wrists had cut deeply into the flesh as a result of Mary attempting to free herself. There were also some minor scrapes on the knees, the hips and the buttocks, probably caused as a result of the poor woman's desperate struggles in the basket as she drowned. The examination also revealed that very shortly before her death, Mary Jones had engaged in sexual intercourse with a man whose blood group was determined from semen found inside Mary to be Group O. There was no suggestion that the sex had been non-consensual. Indeed, it was the opinion of the examining pathologist that due to the amount of vaginal secretion found at autopsy, Mary's participation in the sexual act had been extremely enthusiastic. It was also noted that neither the bindings on her wrists nor the gag had been applied in a deliberately painful manner, and as that all of the cuts and scrapes appeared to be as a result of her own struggles, the pathologist concluded that Mary Jones had submitted voluntarily to being bound and gagged. It had been, he suggested, a part of the sexual activity. The killer had bound and gagged Mary in what she had at least believed was no more than a form of kinky bondage sex play, had engaged in sex with her, and had then drowned the helpless woman like an unwanted animal thrown into a stretch of water in a sack with stone in it. How evil can you get? A search of police records began as it was considered that whoever could commit such a cold-blooded and cruel murder would have to have struck before and may have an established modus operandi of committing similar crimes. It doesn't seem to be a murder of opportune, does it? Not the effort that the killer had gone to to dispose of the body. And do you just arrive at drowning someone in such a horrific way on a whim? Surely not. All police forces in the country were liaised with for a check of their force records, but each one came back negative. There was no record of any similar crime ever taking place since police records began. Although medical experts agreed that the crime was probably the work of a seriously unbalanced person, and it's admittedly hard to conceive of someone in their right mind so cruelly drowning an attractive young woman that they had moments before just enjoyed sex with, it was also possible that this was exactly what the killer had wanted police to think, and this had been deliberately staged. And because this possibility had to be considered, police requested that the report that had been made by the Department of Missing Persons be sent over for thorough examination. As police had been aware that one had been made, it led to them speaking to Henry Jones and arranging for him to identify his wife's body. Within 30 minutes of the report arriving from the missing persons department and being looked at by investigating officers, an active hunt was well underway for the elusive Tony Saunders, staffed by all available officers who weren't already out currently canvassing the area of Liverpool where the Joneses lived. It wasn't a particularly fruitful search, but one other house was found that Saunders had called at in the area. This, however, could only provide so much as to further the established description of Saunders that police had already gleaned from the missing persons report. 
a tall, well-built, relatively young man with a full beard and moustache and black horn-rimmed glasses. He was flashly but neatly dressed in a checked suit, complete with a regimental tie of some sort, and was very well spoken, although in a rather low and raspy voice, as if he had a sore throat, it was described more than once. Mrs. Jones's address book had also been obtained from Henry Jones and taken to police headquarters for a careful examination. If Mary did have a lover, his name or number may have been stored in it in a decipherable code or under a discoverable pseudonym. No codes or hidden messages were to be found, but significantly, the entry relating to Tony Saunders was the only entry in the entire book that didn't have either an address or telephone contact details with it. It was possible that Mrs. Jones had not known either of these, or even if that Tony Saunders was his real name, because it wasn't even sure if he was a real salesman. No one who'd seen him could say with conviction the product he was claiming to be selling, and at any of the houses he'd managed to get past the door being slammed in his face, he'd not seriously tried to make a single sale. The Salesman Act was in all probability no more than a cover-up, for if the killer had been going around from door to door in the area where the Joneses lived, then he had very probably been seen by more people than had been identified, and if he'd seen enough of these, it was possible that he may have let something slip to one of these people, a detail which would assist police in discovering a clue to his identity. Therefore, a mass appeal for information was run in the local press, requesting that any housewives who'd received any calls from a door-to-door -door salesman matching the description and giving the name Tony Saunders to report into the murder incident room. Thinking that this would bring a flurry of calls, police sat back and waited for the phones in the incident room to ring off the hook. There wasn't a single call. Police were sent back out into the neighbourhoods, this time armed with detailed and accurate artists' impressions of the mystery salesman Tony Saunders, as provided by witnesses who'd spoken to him. As a result of this renewed vigour, one door-to-door -door salesman with a full beard and glasses was located, 28-year-old Thomas Henley, who became of interest to the investigating team. Henley had a police record having served eight months of a 14-month prison sentence he'd received when six years before he'd assaulted a teenage girl in a Liverpool park. It had never been made entirely clear what Henley had in mind when he'd assaulted the girl. The extent of the assault isn't reported, and he himself wasn't very helpful or was deliberately elusive when describing the attack, saying merely that the girl had laughed at him. In response to this, he'd torn off most of her clothing although he'd not made any actual attempt to rape the girl. Need to learn to take a joke a bit better, mates. Henley was taken into custody by the murder squad detectives and was placed under interrogation. He denied consistently having anything to do with the murder whatsoever and insisted he'd never been to the Lodge Road area of Liverpool in his life. When he was placed in a lineup of men of similar appearance, with similar full beards and horn-rimmed glasses, Henley was picked out by two of the witnesses who had encountered the mysterious Mr. Saunders when he had called on them, but the other witnesses who had equally encountered the man picked out other different men in the lineup, who as far as police knew had nothing to do whatsoever with the crime. The results therefore were inconclusive, but the interrogation of Thomas Henley continued, as did the search for Tony Saunders, because so far there was no real evidence that Henley was the mysterious man. 
In the meantime, other routine lines of investigation were also being undertaken. These things are just never, well, we'll look at this one line first. Oh, that turned out to be a load of nonsense. Well, then we shall just look at this one. You know, come day, go day like that. Nope. Boom. These things are all multitasked, even back then. Efforts were made to locate the spot in the River Medlock where Mary had been placed into the water in the trunk, and her relatives and close female friends were being questioned to determine if Mary had ever recently mentioned having a relationship with a man other than their husband. Both of these not very promising sounding lines of inquiry were actually though to produce more useful information than what had up to then been considered the primary clue of the mysterious Tony Saunders, whose name was written in Mary Jones's address book and his reported calls on other housewives in the area. The basket and where it was found was looked at first. As currents and the flow pattern of the river were studied, working back from the site where the trunk had been discovered by the engineer, alongside the amount of time the trunk containing Mary's body had been in the water before it was discovered on that gravel bank, it was possible to determine within a half mile distance the point in the river where the trunk had entered the water. Proper remarkable police work, that, eh? A similar trunk of size and weight, loaded with a sandbag weighing exactly Mary's weight plus the weight of the stones found in the trunk, was used to test this theory out, and it was so successful in testing that police had soon discovered the scene of the crime due to it. A stretch of the river Medlock that flowed through, through a remote copse, a perfect place it was considered for secret lovers to meet undisturbed and uninterrupted, or for a murder to be committed. Similar pieces of cord as to those used to lash Mary's hands were discovered near the riverbank, only a few yards away from drag and scrape marks in the mud and gravel, where what was likely to have been the trunk containing Mary had been pushed and dragged to the bank of the river. To confirm it was the scene, in a clump of bushes behind a large tree nearby, a pair of women's knickers were found. They'd not been there long and were not torn and stretched in any way, rather had been deliberately removed, possibly by the wearer herself. The knickers were subsequently identified by Henry Jones as being a pair very similar to those owned by his wife Mary. Tire marks where a vehicle had pulled off the road near to the scene of the crime were also found, but due to the weather and the rain that had occurred since the 15th of November, they'd been washed out to the point where they would be of little value for purposes of identification. In any case, they may not have even had anything to do with the crime. So although the scene had now been established, it didn't actually provide the investigators with any workable physical evidence. There was no forensic evidence gleaned from the cord or the knickers, and the best police could do was to now focus on an appeal for anyone who had seen a vehicle or a couple in the vicinity on November the 15th to come forward. At that time, no one did. But the conversations and conferences that Mary Jones had had with her friends, that detectives were to learn about through their inquiries, were to prove rather much more useful, and were to actually lead the focus of the investigation off in a totally different direction than it had been focused upon up to that point. It was revealed that as early as the winter of 1975, Mary Jones had begun to dye her hair, make more extensive use of cosmetics, and dress more outgoing and attractively generally make so much more of an effort in her appearance. She'd done this, according to what she told some of her close friends in confidence, because she hoped to win Henry back from the arms of the younger woman that he was at the time engaged in an extramarital affair with. 
They went further to tell police that Mary had confided in them that Henry had asked her for a divorce, but she'd refused. So this was a bit more like a motive here, and it brought the focus right back to who's always the prime suspect in these kind of investigations, the other half. A man in his middle thirties, maybe a bit bored or jaded with married life after ten years, perhaps even resentful about the lack of children in the marriage, has his head turned by a younger, more attractive woman and becomes involved in an exciting affair with her. Stranger things have happened, he wouldn't be the first guy to do this, and undoubtedly he wouldn't be the last either. Asking for a divorce and being refused one was a classic motive for murder if there ever was one also, particularly if the husband was in a position of prominence and couldn't afford the inevitable scandal and fallout. Then you've got the division of the house or the assets, etc, etc. Listeners, if you are divorced, then you'll know exactly what I mean when I say these things can take time and they can be tiresome, costly and extremely stressful, and people have been known to take what they consider much quicker and easier option to get rid of an unwanted other half. I know exactly how divorce feels myself. I was divorced many years ago now, and while mine was relatively stress-free, it was certainly was, it most certainly was, when the decree absolute came through, I tell you. But I didn't have her killed, though. I must, can't stress that enough. It's a bonus episode exclusive to you guys, but it's not so exclusive that I'm confessing to murder in it. No, uh, just got shot of her. If the information that police had received from Mary's friends was true, then the investigating team considered now that their prime suspect was none other than Henry Jones himself, the grieving widower who'd made such a show of checking up on the progress of the investigation into his wife's murder. However, whether there would be sufficient evidence to bring him to justice for the crime was another matter, for if he had committed the murder, he'd done it in an incredibly devious way indeed he'd hired the mysterious Tony Saunders to do his dirty work for him. With this working theory in mind, the first thing for the investigating team to do would be to determine whether Henry Jones was actually having an affair or whether it was merely a figment of Mary Jones's imagination and their marriage had actually just gone off the boil a bit. If what she said was true, then Henry's affair would have had to have begun sometime in mid to late 1975. Although the investigations had to be carried out as discreetly as possible because there was no way of knowing whether innocent parties may be involved and they run the risk of possibly destroying and separating families, evidence was soon unearthed that Mary Jones was correct. Henry was indeed having a very physical, very passionate affair with someone who for him was extremely important and had extreme implications on his future. Henry's lover, it turned out, was a young woman named Mildred Masters, and she was none other than the only child of the owner of the company, Masters Group Limited, that Henry Jones worked as an office manager for. And I have to break off here on a slightly weird tangent, because I personally don't know anybody called Mildred, do you? I can't think of anyone famous with that name. I don't know of any people knocking about called Mildred round from where I'm from, and I wonder if people still call the kids by that name. I can't really imagine anyone saying, Oh, baby Mildred. Do you know what I mean? Apologies if any listeners have are called Mildred and you've got that name. I'm not knocking it at all. It's just not one I've come across. It's perhaps one from yesteryear. Bring back Mildred, eh? So learning that Henry had been skiing down a different pink run than he should have been, there was an obvious implication here. 
Playing his cards right, Henry Jones was in a prime position to not only be an employee of the firm that he worked for, but to potentially inherit and become in line for being owner of the company. Receiving into the bargain alongside the wealth such a move would bring, an attractive 22-year-old substitute for his wife of 10 years. Now apparently Jones didn't have the firm character that it was considered necessary to have to resist such a temptation, and so he'd begun having it away with Mildred. Mary had gotten wind of this. There's no evidence that she'd confronted Mildred about it at all, but it had led to Henry asking Mary for a divorce, which she'd refused. This had left her, in his eyes anyway, as the sole unreasonable obstacle to his future happiness and prosperity, and from that conclusion it was only a short step for Henry to make the decision to get rid of Mary and remove her as the obstacle he now saw her as. Henry had done just this, and he had hired the elusive Tony Saunders to first seduce Mary, and then to murder her. Although police were virtually certain that this is what had happened, proving it was a different matter. There wasn't much chance of tracing Tony Saunders. Whoever he was, he was unlikely to have hung around. He would have accepted his blood money and long since departed. He may have even left the country by that time. Not that this would have been necessary, though. I mean, his appearance could have easily been altered, and without police knowing his real name or any details about his person, it would prove difficult to trace him. It would be like looking for a piece of hay in a massive stack full of needles. Absolutely love Blackadder. Have to get that in when you can. The only possibility was if witnesses could be found who had seen both Jones and Saunders together. Remember, these are the days before PayPal and online bank transfers, mobile phones, etc. So they would have had to have met at some point. There had to have been some contact between the two to arrange the exact details of the murder and to hand over the fee for doing it, if nothing else. Thomas Henley, meanwhile, was still in custody, and there was every possibility that he was Henry Jones's hired killer. He continued, however, to deny all connections with the case, and the intensive questioning he endured had not produced any flaws in his statement, so he was eventually released, as there was no physical evidence whatsoever connecting him with either Henry or Mary Jones. The focus of the investigation then shifted to concentrate on Henry Jones's contacts and movements that he'd made within the few months preceding the murder, in the hope of producing a witness who may have seen him with a bearded man with horn-rimmed glasses who possibly sometimes called himself Tony Saunders. While efforts in this direction were still proceeding, but as yet without any results, a member of the investigating team came up with the first piece of evidence that tended to lean towards a semblance of proof that Henry Jones had orchestrated the murder of his wife, although it was perhaps insufficient to enable charges to be brought. Going through Mary Jones's address book for the umpteenth time, it suddenly came to the attention of investigators that the entry of the name Tony Saunders wasn't quite the same as the other longhand entries in the book. The lines of the handwriting of the entry were not the sm same smooth slashes of the pen as the others, but closer examination by investigators suggested that these were more rough and irregular than the other entries. Taking the book to the police forensic laboratory, a handwriting expert was asked to examine the Saunders entry and to compare it with the other entries in the book to determine if it had been written by the same person. With only a bare glance at the entry, the expert was able to tell police that it was most likely written by a different hand. The name Tony Saunders had been written in careful imitation of the other entries in the book, but certainly not by Mary Jones, the author of every other single one. 
With little difficulty, samples of Henry Jones's handwriting were obtained, and although the experts were unable to say with absolute certainty, it was their unanimous opinion that it was most likely none other than Henry Jones who had written the name Tony Saunders in his wife's address book. There was little doubt in the minds of the investigators now that Henry Jones was responsible for the horrific murder of his wife but there was also serious doubt that he would ever face prosecution for the crime. His contacts with Tony Saunders had been so well covered that it proved impossible to trace them. The investigation was as a result suspended, and full details of the investigation that had been held back by police were now released to the press, including the exact location of the scene of the crime, which had never before been publicly revealed. But the round-up story concerning the case that appeared in the local Manchester newspapers which contained this detail about the crime scene was to provide police with a crucial new witness who came forward when he read details of the investigation. The 68-year-old man read details of the investigation in the newspaper and he came forward to tell police that he'd been out walking near to the scene of the crime on the afternoon of the 15th of November and had noticed a works delivery van parked just off the road nearby to the river. He hadn't noticed any persons in the vehicle at the time, but it struck him as strange that a delivery truck for an import-export company should be parked up in such a place a rural lane right in the middle of nowhere at that time on a gloomy Wednesday afternoon in November. He could confirm it was the 15th that he'd seen this truck because he vividly remembered having to cut his walk short that day before he'd headed out to watch a football match that was being held that evening and because it seemed so out of place, the vehicle had stuck in his mind so much that he'd remembered the company name printed on the side of the truck. The name of the company on the side of the truck was Masters Group Limited, the same company where one Henry Jones was a sales manager for. This certainly called for further police investigation, and Henry Jones was arrested and taken into custody. As soon as he was arrested, a group of experts from the police laboratory obtained a search warrant and went over to search his house and office in the hopes of discovering something that may connect him with the crime. However, nothing glaringly obvious was found either in his house or his work office, and nor in the company pickup truck that Henry normally used as a vehicle. There was no written confession hidden in a desk drawer or anything, you know, like uh, like you see in films and all that. In fact, the only items of note that were found throughout the whole search that could be classed as unusual, shall we say, were a number of theatrical costumes belonging to Henry, who'd been heavily involved with amateur dramatics for many years and had performed in plays and pantomimes ever since he was a small boy. All of a sudden, when this detail was almost absently told to the murder squad's senior investigating officer, you could have heard a pin drop in the room. Such was the realisation of what had just dawned on each and every member of the investigating team. They thought it was a tale too fantastic to believe, an impossible one even, but the more that it was thought about, the more that they realised, yes it was possible, and that it was more and more likely. They'd found the elusive Tony Saunders. When the police theory was put to him, Jones denied it at first, but eventually broke down and confessed to the murder of his wife Mary. 
At first, Henry Jones denied to police that he'd disguised himself with a false beard and moustache, horn-rimmed glasses and unusual attire in order to go around to his neighbours and houses in the locality, presenting himself as a fictitious salesman named Tony Saunders from a fictitious Liverpool company named Brown & Company. I know that that sounds like the plot of a Columbo episode or something, but it really was how it sounds. It really, really did happen. It was all done in order for this calculating killer to establish a fictitious murderer for his wife Mary, a plan that he himself had set into motion about six weeks before the murder. According to Henry Jones, he'd found himself in an impossible position by 1978. He'd had his head turned some years before by Mildred Masters, and what had begun as a fling some years before had continued and had deepened into something else. Henry had fallen in love with her, besotted by her completely. Then he started thinking about his future, and by his reasoning, his future depended upon him being able to marry Mildred for the inheritance, the position, and the financial benefit Jones would obtain from doing so. But Mary, as we know, wouldn't consider a divorce from him. She wasn't willing to give up on the man that she loved without a fight. Poor Mary didn't realise that it would be a pointless fight for her anyway. Henry had already long decided that if she wouldn't divorce him, then there was no other solution. He had to get rid of her. So Henry's scheme in mind devised a horrific, chilling plan to do just this, and he began to lay the groundwork for it. As he'd always been fond of amateur dramatics, singing, dancing and theatrics in general, the idea of establishing a complex false identity to allow him to murder Mary came almost naturally to Henry, and in early October 1978, he bought the glasses, the suit and the false beard without Mary knowing anything about it. Whenever he got a spare second at home and Mary was out for a period of time, Henry would practice to perfection a false voice and manner, and perfected creating his false appearance with the suit, the beard and the moustache, trying them on and getting his character perfect. Finally feeling ready, he put the whole disguise on and tested his theatrics out. Hiding his van around the corner from where he lived, he approached and rang the doorbell of his own home at a time when he knew Mary would be home, thinking that if his disguise could fool his own wife, then he would be able to fool other people no problem. And if Mary could see through it, well, there was no harm done. Henry would just say he was messing about and would try something else. Mary had answered the door when he'd rang the bell, and he'd managed to fool her completely. She didn't recognise him at all, she hadn't seen through the disguise or the rasping voice, and she was astonished when Tony Saunders peeled off the beard to reveal the figure of her own husband there. But she didn't freak out. By all accounts, Henry and Mary had always enjoyed a varied and spicy sex life, shall we say, and both were incredibly stimulated by this and that afternoon they'd enjoyed a passionate and energetic sex session. They weren't quite the Wests, these two, but nor were they the Waltons either, shall we say. Over the next month, further scenarios like this took place, with Henry always adapting the role of this salesman, Tony Saunders, which he liked and encouraged Mary to call him, and she responded enthusiastically to because she found the role play a massive turn-on. What Mary didn't realise is that when he wasn't boffing her in disguise, Henry was making several calls on the near neighbours, establishing this false identity enough to plant the seed of the mysterious Tony Saunders in their minds and so provide a prime suspect, one that would never be found. 
This explained the lack of Saunders actually attempting to sell anything and the general vagueness about the man as reported by the several witnesses. It was mainly the disguise and not the full cover story that went with it that Henry had thought about. On the 15th of November 1978, Henry had managed to sneak away from work that afternoon in the company van and after donning his disguise had gone home and rang the doorbell. Mary was delighted to see Tony Saunders for a bit of afternoon delight when she answered the door, and when he suggested the added thrill and excitement of having a bit outside in the open air, she'd readily agreed. They'd driven some distance to the spot by the river, with Mary getting more and more excited by the moment. She was so caught up in her enthusiasm for the role play that she failed to notice how far they'd travelled, and she paid no attention to a familiar-looking wicker trunk from the Joneses' household that was in the back of the works van. If she had seen it, she would likely have recognised it, for it was one that she'd seen many times before. It normally contained Henry's theatrical costumes and props. Mary hadn't even batted an eyelid when Henry suggested that prior to them having intercourse, that he bind and gag her. They'd practised bondage and simulated sadism many times throughout their sex life, and all of this was absolutely game on, and by all accounts Mary had found the combination of the outdoors location, the bondage and gagging, and her husband's disguised appearance very highly stimulating indeed, giving her multiple orgasms, as was suggested by the evidence found at her post-mortem. At some point after sex, who knows just how exactly, Henry managed to persuade Mary to get into the wicker basket. It may have been some sort of weird sex fetish thing, it may have been as part of a joke, it's not exactly clear that. He may have even pushed her into it or forced her. But what is clear though, is that all thoughts of compassion for his wife, his lover and companion of ten years, were gone the moment that she got into that basket and he began dragging her towards the river. He then cold-bloodedly pushed her in and fled, leaving her to drown like a kitten in a bag. How unbelievably callous is that? That's just awful. Can't even get your mind set around someone like that, can you? He'd then gone back to work before making a show of going home and calling around everyone in Mary's address book to express his false concerns about her whereabouts and thus establish his innocence. His final act was to report her to police as a missing person, then constantly check up on the progress of the hunt, keeping up the appearance of a distraught husband. Before reporting it as missing to police, of course, the actor with the murder factor had inscribed the name of his alter ego, Tony Saunders, into Mary's address book. Henry Jones came to trial at Liverpool Crown Court in October 1979, where he pleaded guilty to the murder of his wife Mary based on his confession. On the 26th of October 1979, he was sentenced to life imprisonment. Jones was to serve more than 20 years in prison for this crime before being released early in the 2000s. 20 plus years of your life begone because you think that the grass is greener and you get greedy. And from the sounds of someone so cold-blooded and heartless as Henry Jones, it's no more than he deserved. I doubt that his beloved Mildred waited around for him really for 20 odd years and he really was left with nothing except to fade into obscurity following his release. Pretty unreal case this one this month, eh? The length someone would go to to get what they wanted. As I said before, it's like the plot of a Columbo episode or something, that, don't you think? 
I was very surprised, in fact, for a crime with a bit of drama and such a callous one at that. I mean, leaving someone trussed up to drown in a sealed wicker basket is barbaric indeed, isn't it? There's precious little to research about Henry Jones and his crime, though. I could find only one reference to it through an immense search about the case, and it was buried deep in a book in my trusty library, a proper right obscure find, very much like last month's Patreon episode. This is not actually the Patreon episode that I had planned for this month, but it's a replacement one. The case that I had in mind is actually going to be this week's episode of the regular show I've decided, because I found that there was plenty to tell about it when I proper dived into researching it. Depending on when you listen to this episode, you may have already heard it too. Please let me know your thoughts about this month's extra Patreon exclusive episode. By all means, get in touch through social media, as I'd love to hear from you about it. And thank you very much all for your kind continuing support of the show. I look forward to you joining me for next month's bonus Patreon episode, bonus number 15, which will be out on April the 1st. And I'll try and come up with a bit of an April Fool themed case for the episode. I'll have a look through my files anyway and see if I can find something quite fitting. I hope that you found this month's episode an informative and interesting one anyway. And that's it from me for this Patreon month, guys. I'm still beavering away on the regular show, of course. Don't worry, that never stops. You can catch me there each week. So until we next speak, I've been Paul, the true crime enthusiast. I wish you guys all good and safe times, and I shall catch you very soon. Take care all. Thanks very much for joining me, and goodbye for now.